Hey everybody and welcome to the 58th edition of Scoring at the Movies, the sports movie podcast that drops every second Thursday. Careful, we spoil. I'm the squirrely fuck who escapes confrontations by jumping out the window and landing in a pile of garbage, Ryan Ellis. And here's the welterweight pugilist who didn't just get off the couch. Well, he did, but you get a theme here. My dickie, Chris Gregorio. Thanks, Ryan. It's wicked awesome to be here. Real pisser. That's all I got. That's as far as my Bostonian accent goes. Okay, I was going to say you do the Boston accent because I never was very good at that one. If the opportunity presents itself, I've been practicing. This is what I've discovered about the Boston accents. If you can find a phrase that you can like whip out really quick, how about you there? Either say it really fast, drop the R's, or get the elongated A's going. Drop the R's is big, yep. I lose it in a hurry, so I'm not going to belabor the point. I do worry about being called your dicky. I thought we talked about that, and we'd agree that this would be a That's purely my dicky. professional relationship. But he's my dicky! The mom is obsessed with the son who once was a good boxer, but isn't anymore. So before we get into the podcast, and before even that, we're going to do a little bit of an update here on where you can find this podcast. But let's open up a beer so you can wet your whistle. What do you have there? I'm really leaning hard into the stuck-up college boy thing here today. I'm going with a Belgian sour ale, my favorite Rodenbach brand stuff. This would get me beaten up in Lowell, in 1992 Lowell, Massachusetts. I'm sure the Budweiser fans of the world would take me down in a hurry, but I'm safely tucked away in my basement in Toronto, so I feel no fear. (laughs) No fear. I was going to drink beer for this one. I forgot about that until right now. So I have bourbon and diet. And I think I said this on the Rocky Two podcast. I had the bourbon hangover that time, but not today. I am barely into the bourbon at all. (laughs) Okay, before we get going on The Fighter, we've got a bit of a note for you. Some of you might know this because you've already downloaded this or look into the future and you'll maybe hear this one and think, what's he talking about? Well, anyway... We are now in a new channel, our very own Scoring at the Movies feed. Rocky 2 went up through Podbean two weeks ago, but that was a last-minute decision we made that week to finally break free of the Top Runner project. <laughs> break free? <laughs> break those <laughs> chains. To break free. You've had me chained to the radiator in your basement, low these last 56 episodes, Ryan. <laughs> and I finally broke free of the shackles. We'll leave our old episodes on the Top Runner Project feed for a few months and post the new ones there for a while too, of course. But we're going to stop that by October. So you got a few months, but after that, if you're not already, you're going to have to look up Scoring the Movies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, and also tune in, right? Yeah, it should basically be everywhere. I think even Google Podcasts and... Whatever it? you get your podcasts, as people like to say. Yeah, exactly. At this point, it should be. I'm not sure Top Runner Project is everywhere. I think it's just the ones I always promote, Apple Podcasts. Stitcher, and Spotify, but I should look at branching us out into these other things. Yeah, you're a podcast app partisan, Ryan. You draw hard lines in the sand. (laughs) We will not partake in the, uh, I don't know, Pandora's or Google Podcasts of the world. What it really is is I simply don't know any better. But anyway. (laughs) It's just simple (laughs) ignorance. (laughs) So we'll keep talking about this new feed as the next few episodes play out. Keep reminding people. We'll drive you crazy if those who already know. We already know. Shut up. But for those who don't. And hopefully by October, we'll be on our own, not on the Top 100 Project. And I'll probably strip those off of there, too, to give us more space and everything for Bev and me. 
Okay, El Ganador, I guess, the El fighter, Ganador. was released by Paramount 10 years ago in mid-December 2010. It had a small budget, but it made a killing. It grossed $100 million more than it cost to make. $25 million it cost, and about $125 million, I believe, worldwide, is how much this film made. Mark Wahlberg took no money, basically, to make this movie. I think it was all back-end stuff. And Christian Bale made a pittance. And they, of course, are the two main stars. Well, anyway, I've seen The Fighter, I think, three times now. I assume you've seen it before this, or maybe you haven't. What would you think of El Ganador? I'd seen it in the theater when it released, and there's a few movies we've done that have reminded me how old I am getting in a hurry, and for some reason, this one really hit home. When we talked about doing The Fighter, I remember seeing that three or four years ago, again, in the theater, and then, of course, I'd turn it on, and hold on a second, 2010? A decade? Yikes. Yeah. So yeah, I hadn't seen it in a decade, apparently. I'd had vague remembrances of enjoying Mark Wahlberg and Christian Bale's performances. And incidentally, it doesn't surprise me that Mark Wahlberg at least did this effectively, as you said, at scale for nothing, maybe some back-end points or what have you. He does have, in his filmography, a history of doing passion project-y type stuff. A movie about a Massachusetts-based underdog boxer character i could totally see that being a thing that mark Wahlberg said you know what i want to tell the story i want to play this character i'll do it basically for nothing and let's this just is it me done. it's not far off right never a professional boxer of course but as a guy that's known for physicality in real life in not so great ways maybe but mm-hmm. i liked that movie then i liked it now but the one thing that struck me in watching this movie is in my mind and again maybe this is just how old i am Mark Wahlberg is intrinsically linked to his early days still. 18, 19, 20-year-old Mark Wahlberg, who was the bad boy, the guy that was known for getting into fights, who... The underwear commercials. Yeah, to a lesser degree, the underwear stuff. Mostly the violence of his private life when he was a young guy. That's linked to your upbringing and the environment in which you're raised. But it just blew my mind, because I think starting with, what is it, The Big Hit, maybe was his first movie I recall seeing him in a leading role after transitioning into acting. Boogie Nights. Did that come before The Big Hit? I think so. While you talk, I'll look it up, but I think so. I think Big Hit was 98. About that late 90s era, anyway. Well, around the same time, yeah. The spirit of what you're saying is true. His first movie was Renaissance Man in 1994. Don't remember He was in The Basketball Diaries with Leo. Do remember Fear, Reese Witherspoon movie. Boogie Nights, a couple years after that. Yeah, the Big Hit was 98. Oh, and also, Bev and I did Three Kings just last year, which I think is a far better performance than this one. Yeah. Partly because he's working with people that are so over the top. I guess they're authentic, probably, from what we've seen about other Boston movies, but Melissa Leo, Christian Bale, and all the sisters lay it on remarkably thick. And Mark Wahlberg, and I guess Amy Adams too, but especially Mark Wahlberg, is the only normal person in this movie. And he, in a way, kind of like in Planet of the Apes, is boring. But maybe he has to be, to counterpoint, all these other people that are just trying to act so hard. Yeah, and I think that's exactly what struck me. But this is Mark Wahlberg, too, right? And what came to mind for me is once he hit that late 90s acting phase onward, I can't think of a role where he deviates from this, really. But he's always the big, muscular, strong, bulky, whatever. Physically, he's a big guy. Well, not tall. I think he's like 5'8". But he's a big guy. But he's always the soft-spoken, reserved dude. Even the roles when he's trying to come across as a little bit crazier, he always comes across as soft-spoken and slightly reserved. It seems to be his innate personality. And to me, there's this cognitive dissonance of me trying to link grown-up Mark Wahlberg of the last 20 years with young, 
rowdy, ne'er-do-well Mark Wahlberg of his first... Marky Mark. Yeah, the Marky Mark era. Yeah, that's, that's a good way of putting it. For a guy that's made his mark in Hollywood, much in the same way that I guess Dwayne Johnson has, by being a big, tough guy in most of his roles, they're both kind of soft-spoken people. And that's just exactly what he is in this movie. He's borderline boring, while his whole world is just a maelstrom of insanity around him. And you said maybe it's realistic? I doubt it's realistic. I think it's melodramatically enhanced realism, maybe. Yeah, because it is a movie. Yeah. The family took issue, in fact, with the way they're portrayed in this film. They well, didn't I don't blame them at all. <laughs> the sisters especially. I don't know about the mother so much. The sisters definitely did. The seven wicked stepsisters? Dickie didn't like the way his sisters were portrayed. Oh, Dickie. Yeah, Dickie. So this is going to be hard to keep track of, but Dickie is Christian Bale and Mickey is Mark Wahlberg. But Dickie's the one in real life who didn't love the way his family was portrayed, especially the sisters. And I don't blame him because I wanted them at one point to just shut the fuck (laughs) up. You mean when they were talking about that MTV gal? The scene that epitomized their entire reason for being in this movie was the scene when Maria, not Maria Bello, correct Melissa Leo. Melissa Leo, thank you. I keep getting those two names switched up in my head. But when she's sitting at the table, she gets the call about the proposed fight for Mickey. This is after he's busted his hand. Was it after or was it before? The cops busted his hand. Yeah. And they're all sitting around the table, and they find out he's seeing this Charlene girl. And the seven sisters are just arrayed in the room, all drinking Budweiser's, all with terrible, blown-out, hairspray, big do's, all just ragging on this poor girl, Charlene, right? Just because she's, quote-unquote, MTV girl, because she's wild or something. And she's a snotty, stuck-up college girl. At that point in this movie, I was struggling a little bit, because it almost struck me as one of those movies that revels and glories in the absurdity of willful ignorance or something. Like, I'm proud of knowing that I'm uneducated, of knowing that... Sorry, I'm trying to figure out how to say this in a not insulting way. Because it's not that I'm ragging on these characters for not having gone to college or anything like that. But it's holding somebody else's education against them. And not even like, oh, this PhD thinks they're so much better than I am. But this poor girl goes to college for a bachelor's degree on a high-jumping scholarship or something. Comes back home to work a normal 9-to-5... Well, not 9-to-5 job, but a bartending job. Very blue-collar. Very blue-collar. But the very fact that she deigned to go to university was a reason for them to deride her. I'm like, oh, man. You think you're better than me, don't you? That's a real problem in America. Yeah. America's been doing that for I don't know how long, but especially the last 10 or 20 years, especially through the Obama stuff. Exactly. Oh, he's so uppity, isn't he? And of course, you know what that means. So obviously it's a bit racist, but it's also a matter of that he is smarter than most of us. Don't you want... Anyway, we've talked about that in another podcast. I don't need to get all political. But I do hate that mentality. You think you're better than me? Maybe they are, or maybe she is. Who cares if she is? The problem I have with the sisters more so than that, even though I didn't care so much about them doing that, was when they won't shut up about his career. His mother isn't a good manager for him because she doesn't put him first. Like he says at one point, you're always putting Dickie ahead of me, which at that point is absurd. Dickie is never going to box again. No one will ever sign him to box in a match. He's too old. He's way past his prime. And he's a crack addict. He's been in jail. There's no way he's getting this gig. If he was as big a star as he thought he was, maybe. He had that moment against Sugar Ray in 78. But this is 1993, so 15 years later. It's over, Dickie. Sorry, but it is. And his mother still puts him on that same pedestal. But she is his manager. She's not a very good manager, but okay. When the sisters pipe up about his career, that's when I started thinking. I think I literally said what I said a few minutes ago, which was, just shut up. This is none of your business. It's maybe his parents' business because his mother's the manager and his father is involved too, but not yours. 
And that's the way they're portrayed. Maybe the sisters weren't like that. But the way they're shown in this movie, they're stupid idiots. And I got really tired of them really fast. But I bet a lot of people would say, but that's the way this family was. Or that's the way families like this in Boston or Lowell, Massachusetts are. Fine. But two hours of it. And they're not in the movie that much. So whatever it is, 20 minutes of them is more than enough. I don't wholly disagree with you there because I felt similarly frustrated at times. But the only thing that got me through that aspect of the sisters as they were portrayed in the movie was knowing how often something like that is the case in the very bottom tier of the socioeconomic ladder in America, and not just in boxing, things like football and basketball, where you have families that are embroiled in poverty and have no visible way out. Except this meal ticket. But not just except for this meal ticket. I mean, that is absolutely true. And at first they thought it would be Dickie. It proved not to be. And now they've labeled Mickey as their family's savior. But they pick this talented member of their extended family, or sometimes just friends, right? Like, how often do we see these posses around basketball players just sapping millions of dollars away from their meal ticket? But they have done it at the expense of any ambition of their own. And so they are no longer their own entities. We never see any of them have a significant other on the scene. They have no personal relationships in this movie, aside from being their own family clique. That's all we ever see them as. The only real personalities they have are defensive of their brothers to an extreme because, like you said, it's the only meal ticket they have, and just angry about their lot in life for the most part. And that exhibits itself as that you think you're better than me that I freaking detest because why does anybody have to be better? We should all just want each other to be the best versions of ourselves and whatever that looks like, that's what that looks like. Why do we have to be angry at somebody for aspiring? And I think we see characters in this movie state this at various points actually i guess maybe it's always mickey mickey says to dicky can't you just be happy for me i'm getting the shot that you never had why can't you just be happy about that and then later in the movie he even says to his mother this is after mark Wahlberg has punched out christian bale in the sparring ring it's always dicky it's never going to happen for him he's 40 years old he doesn't have a real tooth in his head why can't you be pro mickey for once Regardless of how we might feel about how they were portrayed on the screen, at least I think the director was aware. I don't disagree with that at all. I think that David O. Russell did a great job of directing this movie. He didn't write it. He's written a lot of his other movies. And he was coming back after not making a film for quite a while. We've all probably heard about the stories on I Heart Huckabees, where he bitched out Lily Tomlin, and she gave it right back to him. But he called her some awful things. And apparently he and George Clooney fought on Three Kings. I think Bev and I talked about that when we did that last year. And Wahlberg wasn't eager to work with him immediately. He wanted Scorsese to direct this. He gave him the script because they'd worked together on The Departed a few years before. This was actually one of those movies that took forever to get made. So Wahlberg apparently got in shape long before 2009 or 10, whatever they shot, and then just stayed in that kind of shape all that time. So he's in movies through that whole period, and I guess since. So we're looking at maybe close to 20 years where he's got that kind of body. I guess every actor does now, but he's got that kind of body getting ready for the fighter and it took forever to get it made and a lot of directors were maybe going to do it Darren Aronofsky who is a producer on this an executive producer but he went off to make Black Swan instead so Russell wasn't first or even second choice to direct it but I think he did a very good job of directing it and as we've been saying very authentic two people won Oscars for this movie you always have to give credit to the director when that happens Christian Bale best supporting actor and Melissa Leo best supporting actress it was also nominated for best picture best director for Russell Amy Adams, a supporting actress against Leo, obviously, the screenplay and the editing. I think Haley Steinfeld in True Grit, especially her, or Helena Bonham Carter in The King's Speech, or even Adams in this movie were all better than Melissa Leo. Leo's fine, 
And it's one of those, in a way, career achievement awards. She wasn't some big star who had never won after 20 years, but people knew about her. She'd been on the scene for a while. She's really good in Frozen River. She also was nominated for that. But part of why she won, this is a pretty infamous story, is that she went out there and marketed herself, which I think is fine. People said, how dare she have these for-your-consideration-type posters and promotional stuff that she put out herself. Of course, usually the studio that makes your movie does that, but she did it out of her own pocket. And when I heard that, I thought, that's a little bit tacky, but also it's your job, it's your career, you might as well promote yourself. But that's one reason why she may have won. I never thought she should have won, and when she did, my attitude was not, how dare that scheming bitch get her own Oscar that way? You know what it is? You've probably not heard of a movie called Confidence. Dustin Hoffman's in that, I think Edward Burns. Anyway, Dustin Hoffman is in that movie, and he's why I bring it up. He literally is all over people. The main character, who I think is Burns, is sitting with him in a booth or something like that, restaurant. And he's beside him, but he puts his arm around him, and he's grabbing him and all this kind of stuff. And it's one of those muggy-type performances, which I think Hoffman pulled off well in that movie, but he got criticized for it. Bale and Leo in this movie both won Oscars for... I've heard screen junkies talk about this before. Not the best acting, the most acting! I understand what you're describing it as, especially in the case of Melissa Leo. I thought she was way over the top, but way over top in an effective way. It's effective. I'll give you that. Yeah. I don't know the other performances that you just cited in this year well enough off the top of my head. You should see True Grit, though. I highly recommend that of all those movies. If you haven't seen... Okay. They're all movies I've seen once. But like any other Academy Award these days and probably for decades now, I just assume, and we all hear stories about this too, where studios put up an actor, or maybe two actors, one for a leading role, one for a supporting role in a movie, and those are their promotional pushes for that Oscar season. So the Oscars are admittedly, and I don't know for how long this has been the case, maybe forever, both a product of good acting and good performances, but also advertising campaigns for all intents and purposes. They always were, really. You said 10 or 20 years, did you? I think we're talking the last 70 years it's been like that. It might be forever, for all I know. It also has become, like you just said, a bit of a career achievement award for these longer tenured actors sometimes as well. So as long as it's a good performance and somebody wins, I'm like, yeah, okay, sure, why not? Maybe it wasn't the best performance, but I think, honestly, there's often somebody you could say, that person was probably better than this person was this year, but they... We're both deserving performances, whatever. That's always subjective anyway, because you can really say what the best performance is. Some people will point out if everybody played the same character in a different movie, if everyone did Hamlet and then they all ranked those people, that'd be one way to do it. But then again, if somebody brought something weird to it, but it worked, you might say, okay, but they're not speaking English in that movie, as in they're speaking some other language, or they're not speaking old English as in Shakespearean language. So even that is subjective. But it's funny because people were surprised that Mark Wahlberg didn't get nominated, and yet I really? would have nominated him because he's no. so overwhelmed by everybody else. This isn't even close to his best work. He's better in The Departed where he did get nominated, and maybe he should have won the Supporting Actor Oscar for that. He's such a vital part of that movie. He makes the most of his scenes. Everybody's good in that film, but he's terrific in that. He was nominated for producing this, though, so he got the nomination that way because the movie was up for Best Picture. So he was at the show anyway. But Bale really was, again, getting into another movie so thoroughly. Again, losing a bunch of weight like he did in The Machinist, which he did right before Batman Begins. So he goes from being drastically underweight to having to be, as he said, fat man, because he actually overgained the weight back to be muscular and eventually got to the point where he was the muscular character in Batman Begins. And then, what was it? A couple years later, he does Rescue Dawn, a movie with Werner Herzog, where he lost weight again. This guy is going to get diabetes Or kill himself with these yo-yo diets he's gone on. He's so committed. I'm so impressed with that. Although that's not really what acting is. But he had to be a crack addict, so he couldn't be my size. He couldn't be tubby. But his award was also a bit of a career achievement because he had done the movies I just said before this and Little Women, of course. And and Part of the Sun was Spielberg. 
and American Psycho, where he's terrific. Oh, he's a litany of roles. I can't argue with his nomination or winning for this role. I thought he did a really good job. And if you see any interviews with Dickie Eklund, you can really see the inspiration for his performance. You can't ask for much more out of an actor than to nail the mannerisms. In this kind of movie, anyway, where there was an actual person you're basing the performance on. And he did it. He doesn't look exactly like the guy, but he looks as close as Christian Bale's ever going to look to him. I think Mark Wahlberg actually bears a pretty striking resemblance to the real Dick Ward. Mickey Ward. Mickey Ward, sorry. I'm going to do it more than once. I can't argue with Christian Bale's win for this. He did lose, you're right, he lost 30 pounds, apparently, for this role. He lost 60 or 70 for The Machinist. What I found interesting is when he lost the weight from The Machinist, apparently he existed on largely a diet of coffee and apples. <laughs> No wonder you're so emaciated. Well, and not long after this movie, he goes on to American Hustle, again with Russell, again with Adams, where he put on weight. So that's why I talk about the yo-yo dieting thing. Oh, by the way, let me do the nutshell, since we're talking about Christian Bale and his Dustin Hoffman confidence grabby performance. I'm all over you all the time. In a nutshell, The Fighter, it's the Dickie Eklund story. This is not the Mickey Ward story. Mark Wahlberg is a supporting player in his own movie. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. One of my questions from you was going to be whether or not you cared more about Dick Eklund or Mick Ward, because frankly... Far more. Far more about Eklund, right? I was thinking about that towards the end of the movie, because as we're in the ultimate fight of the movie against Neri, I don't really care if he wins or loses this, because I've already had the emotional catharsis of being happy for Dick Eklund. He had to go to jail for it, mind you, but he got himself clean... He got himself right in the head, as his own character says. He put his brother above himself, finally. Yeah, he showed the emotional maturity of growing up a little bit and realizing this moment in my life 15 years ago was maybe an interesting moment for me. Not a great moment, necessarily, but at least an interesting one, and I gotta stop living on that, because this is why I did enjoy Christian Bale's performance. The first bit of the movie, I really felt almost disgusted by this person not because of the crack habit the crack habit i was empathetic about i felt sorry for them and as described in the faux documentary you know everything's funnier everything's lighter you feel young again and then you come down you have to get high again i feel the empathy and the sympathy for the guy in that circumstance wanting to recapture his youth but where i felt disgusted by him was in that lack of maturity that inability to grow up the early stages of the movie would have been in the early 90s so at that point he would have been early to mid-30s and he's still stuck to his mother's hip running away from his mom like he's a teenager getting caught at a girl's house when she's coming for him in the crack house jumping out the window he does that two or three times in the movie especially when mickey's waiting for him mickey knows he's gonna do it obviously he's done it before mickey's right there the mother does too hey dickie right she does it too they know where he's going they know like he's tricking anybody anybody that will listen to him for three seconds he relives the sugar ray leonard moment i didn't beat but i knocked down the best in the world It's actually an interesting clip to watch, the real-life fight between those two. I don't know if you've seen it or not. I didn't, know The disputed knockdown versus slip, because it's a little bit of a combination of both. You see Dick Eklund kind of throw a punch, then kind of push Sugar Ray. He's also kind of tangled up with him, so maybe it's a slip. But the fact is, even if he landed like a haymaker on Sugar Ray that knocked him down once, 15 years ago, you've gone nowhere in your life to the point where that's something you keep bringing up over and over and over and hanging your hat on. It was pathetic. It's Al Bundy in Married with Children living off his high school football past. Although it's more impressive to be a boxer in the pros and fight Sugar Ray Leonard. And whether you knocked him down or not, he obviously stood toe-to-toe with him. That's more impressive than Al Bundy, but the same mentality. Yeah, I think that's a very apt comparison. But the fact that Christian Bale was able to get that emotion out of me within the first 30 or 40 minutes of the movie 
And then there was that transition period where he's in jail and you see him wrestling with seeing himself on screen and his children mm-hmm. suffering and then his brother fighting that he can't watch and can only be told about on the telephone by his mother. And then getting out of prison and first being angry, but then growing. There was a real emotional arc that Christian Bale was able to really effectively portray. Because this is his movie. And you're right. He's overacting. He absolutely is. But I found it effective and I found it close enough to the real Dick Eklund from the footage I've seen of the man. If his Academy Award cause was helped by the fact that he had a pretty solid library of work behind him at that point. Cool, cool. But you're absolutely right. There is no comparison between his performance and Mark Wahlberg. The two characters are intended to do totally different things. Mark Wahlberg's character, Dick Ward, is the straight man in the movie. I think you said Dick Ward again, by the way. So Mickey Ward. You know what I think it is? The Batman-Robin comparison? Because in my mind, I'm thinking Batman. And there's (laughs) Dick Grayson and Burt Ward. One of these guys is Batman. Here's what we'll do for the rest of the podcast. Ward and Eklund. So Ward, of course, is Wahlberg. Eklund is Bale. We've set these lines in the sand. Let's see if we can follow them. (laughs) You kind of described it, that Wahlberg was a supporting player in his own movie. Ward is a supporting player in his own life. Almost like he's just taken up in this maelstrom of his family. He's just pulled along with it. And whether it's his family or Charlene, he's just kind of there saying, all right, you guys are pulling me this way. I guess I'll go this way. And at very few points, I think he tries to stand up for himself once and he gets yelled at by Charlene. (laughs) And that was about it in the whole movie. Otherwise... You make a good point. I'm going to do what you say. Now you make a good point. I'm going to do what you say. But Charlene and Mickey O'Keefe, so his actual trainer, the real guy's name is Mickey O'Keefe, and he's credited as Mickey O'Keefe. His first ever performance, the only other movie he ever did was American Hustle for Russell a couple years later. Is that the guy that played the cop too? The cop slash trainer? He's a cop, but he's also his trainer, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I guess Eklund, we're saying now, there we go. was his trainer. But when he's doing things right, and what do you know? He starts to succeed when he listens to the trainer who's got his best interests in mind, not Eklund's best interests in mind. So when his girlfriend and his older man trainer are the ones in charge, he starts doing so much better. And yes, one of the great moments in the film, for sure, is when Eklund can put all that shit aside and say, I may not like you very much, Charlene, and I don't want to play second fiddle to this Mickey O'Keefe guy. But I will for the good of my brother. But then again, and this is at least consistent, I kind of liked it in a way, even though I was annoyed all over again in a way too. But when they do the promotional photos and Eklund gets in there, gets his head in there, this isn't about you. It's literally one of those clowning pictures they do for boxing matches with those two guys. You're not even his manager. You're his trainer, but you're not his manager. So anyway, that was well done and probably very authentic. I agree with you that Bale did a hell of a job and that arc is fantastic. But at the same point, I was a little bit annoyed by that, too. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is the critics were not annoyed by this movie. 90% of them liked this film for an average of 7.8 out of 10 and 89% of audiences. This movie was raved about back then. It was 35th that year at the 2010 U.S. box office. The Karate Kid remake, a sports movie we're never going to cover, but it was a sports movie, was 11th. That was a blockbuster. Was that the Jaden Smith Jaden Smith, that's his name. And yeah, I don't Secretariat. think I can ever bring myself to watch that. We're not watching. I'm just bringing up <laughs> sports movies that were out that same year that were successful-ish. And Secretariat, the horse racing movie, was 58th that year. So this was a quick shoot in Massachusetts, of course, for the authenticity, and California on that $25 million budget. So it's in Lowell, Lowell, Massachusetts. Mike Lowell, the baseball player, was with the Red Sox in, what year was that, 2007, I think, when they won a World Series? So he was right at home, I guess, in that area. And as you said, there's an actual camera crew shooting them in the streets. So they've got the meta thing going on there, I guess, because it's a movie, but then they're shooting a movie, and that's the documentary that he watches in prison. 
I can't remember what the name of the documentary was, like Lowell Life on the Streets or something like that. He thinks it's about his boxing comeback, but it's really just about crack addicts on the street and they're using this well-known guy. Well, at that time, he was Lowell's favorite son. Mickey becomes that ward, becomes that later on. Yeah. But at that point, it's Eklund. Well, maybe not. He thought it was still. He was at one time. Maybe he's not. And then when Wahlberg meets the sexualized Amy Adams tending bar, <laughs> it's odd because Amy Adams is an outstanding actress. She's been good in so many movies. She didn't get nominated for Arrival a few years ago, which is one of her best performances, but she's been nominated, I think it's six times. She's going to start setting records for nominations without having one. Maybe that's one reason I think she should have won for this, then she would have that Oscar in the bank. She's coming after Meryl Streep. How many times did Meryl Streep get nominated before she finally won? Wasn't it like nine? She won when she was young. She won for Kramer versus Kramer, and it was her second or third. Oh, yeah, okay. and then she Obviously. won for Sophie's Choice a few years later. No, she got her wins pretty early on. But it's weird to see Amy Adams be sexualized in a movie. Because, hey, you just said Meryl Streep. The two of them were in doubt with Philip Seymour Hoffman, the dearly departed, a few years before this, where she plays a nun, the complete opposite of this character in just about every single way. Yeah, but like any other actress, basically, in Hollywood... Amy Adams, who's, I guess, the Hollywood equivalent of The Girl Next Door or something. Definitely, yeah. She's still an incredibly attractive woman, so you want to sexualize her? I don't think it's a stretch to believe that suddenly Amy Adams is a beautiful, attractive, and desirable woman. It's a little strange seeing her play that character, I guess, because we don't see it much in her roles that I've seen, anyway. You're right about that. It also struck me as a little strange just because it doesn't really play into her actual character at all in the movie except that it serves as a kind of excuse to have... The sisters hate her? Well, the sisters hate her, but... Sorry, I'm trying to remember. We said we call them Ward and Eklund, right? So it was an excuse for Ward to come to her quote-unquote defense in the bar and beat up the guy that was being disrespectful while she was tending bar. But other than that, her character is a very strong, willful, self-possessed female lead character who's really got more chutzpah and drive than Ward does for much of the movie, right? That's true. She's his backbone for all intents and purposes for much of it. And she's got his best interests in mind, and she's right with what she says. Like I said earlier, she and O'Keefe are the reason why Mickey got to the point at the end of the movie where he could win a fight, because Eklund was not going to take him there. There's no way Eklund was going to take him there. It was all about the proper trainer and his girlfriend, who was being not like Adrian. We just did Rocky Two last time. Adrian's a great wife, but she's not much of a... Well, she's not supposed to be a boxing trainer, and of course she always has to give him support, Rocky, that is, at some point in the film. But Charlene in this movie is not giving support. She's the ass kicker, and that's what he needs. And you mentioned Dick dragging Mickey down for much of this movie. But that's Ward's whole family, right? What I did appreciate about this is the fact that there's a very well-acted scene between Wahlberg and Bale in the jail. Eklund put up his girlfriend to be a fake prostitute to lure a John into an alley so that he can steal the John's wallet and car or what have you. And of course he gets busted, runs from the cops gets beaten up and arrested himself, and that's when Ward comes to his defense and gets his hand broken. I guess Eklund at that point, they said he had like 27 prior arrests, I think they announced in court or something, so he's got a long record, and I guess that's why he gets such a severe sentence relative to Ward. Ward goes to visit him in jail. Dick, I've got this shot. Why can't you be happy for me? And Eklund turns around and says, okay, what's your strategy going to be against this guy? Ward says, oh, I'm going to go after him in the first two rounds and try to knock him out. And Eklund says, no, no, you got to run from him, wear him down, let him tire himself out, and then go after the body. And the fact that Ward put that strategy into play in the fight against, was it Alonzo? What was the guy's name? Sanchez? Alonzo Sanchez? Sanchez. 
And that's a strategy he utilizes. It wins it for him. It was a little bit of a redemptive thing, right? Eklund's got issues. He's got all kinds of problems. But he knows boxing. That's why he should be involved in training Ward, but he shouldn't be his manager. Neither should his mother be the manager. And I also noticed, and I know you don't love Raging Bull, but it did feel like he was playing possum, and obviously you're confirming that he was. But he gets in that one good body shot. It reminds me of Raging Bull, where Jake is playing possum for the longest time in a match, and right before it's about to end, and this is the great shot Scorsese has where the camera comes into the ring. It had been outside the ring the whole time, and as soon as Jake turns around, he literally spins the guy around in the corner, starts wailing on him, knocks him out with, I think, seconds left before the match is over. But the camera enters the ring. Now it's invited into the ring. Same kind of feeling I had there. And this movie's obviously going for sort of a Rocky vibe, maybe more of a Raging Bull vibe in that kind of boxing movie. I guess most boxing movies that are successful tend to be pretty gritty. The Rocky movies, when they're at their best, Rocky's poor, like the first two and these most recent two, the two Creed films. Raging Bull is basically the same. It's a regular guy who gets his shot. And it's one of my favorite moments in Raging Bull where he is just waiting for his one good chance. And then it's not even a headshot. It's to the body. And then the guy goes down. He is absolutely playing possum as it's portrayed in this movie. I'm a big fan of this movie. I think it's become obvious as we've talked about the performance. I really enjoyed watching it. I think more the second time than I even remembered enjoying it the first go-around. But one thing I disliked a little bit about it, and it's going to be something that I'm pretty sure I've ragged on a number of movies for, is a fake sense of drama, of stakes, of whatever. The way they portray Ward in this movie, both in leading up to his title shot understanding also that the timelines in this movie are kind of funky they're a little weird yes i had to look it up i was getting confused at a certain point about how everything was lining up so i had to look up mickey ward's actual fight history right early on in the movie we have a scene of ward training and dick Eklund's talking to him about the sugar ray thing and he says at that point oh, it was about 14 years ago right so that fight against sugar ray was 78 And then time passes from that scene and Ward fights Mungin, right? That replacement fighter in Vegas who was supposed to be a pushover and beats the snot out of him. Who's been sitting on the couch. Who's been sitting on the couch. He's been sitting on the couch. And he's 20 pounds heavier. No wonder Ward loses that fight. Okay, so 1992, move forward. He has that fight. But in reality, the Mungin fight against Ward happened in 1988. At that point, Ward was on a four-fight winning streak and then after that went on a little bit of a losing streak, and then on another winning streak, and then he fights Alonzo Sanchez, or whatever his name is, in like 1996, 97, and then fights Neri in 2000. So we have like a 12-year time span that's kind of chopped and compressed for the sake of this movie into more like a few years. Feels like maybe five years at the most. Probably less than that. That aspect of it, and them trying to portray Ward as this down-and-out guy, despite the fact, even within the movie, when he's walking into the ring and they flash up the 90s-era graphics and they show his fight record, 29-7, and 30-7, this is not a bad record. Maybe it's not championship-caliber record. I don't understand why he's embarrassed to show his face around Lowell. You're a professional fighter with far more wins than losses. Hold your head high. At the same time, even in the fights themselves, like that fight against Sanchez, where, like you said, seven rounds of playing possum, just wearing him down, to a certain extent, that was true. I looked at the fight footage, and leading up to that body shot that knocked out Sanchez, the old footage flashed up the judges' scorecards, and Sanchez was leading. It was like 60 to 54 or something. That's seven rounds in, there's a six-point difference. That's not a blowout. It's not the embarrassment that the movie wanted you to think it was going into that body shot that knocked Sanchez out. 
Those kinds of touches I felt like were unnecessary embellishments trying to make Ward look like a bigger loser than he was. And I say that because I think we both agree the emotional catharsis you get out of this movie is not from Ward winning the championship. It's mostly from his family coming together, Dick cleaning up his act, Ward getting together with Charlene, him figuring out his life. That's where all the emotional stuff in this movie comes from. At the end of it all, the fact that he beat Neri, I was like, yeah, okay, cool, good for you, man. But... I didn't really feel much about that. It was it everything really matter. else. Yeah. For a movie that otherwise was very realistic, that was the thing. This movie goes out of its way to try to be realistic. If you watch moments from the Sanchez fight, that knockout punch, the way that the real-life Mick Ward knocked out the real-life Sanchez was exactly like that. Those actors did a remarkable job of the one-two to Sanchez's left ribs, and then down he goes they do a remarkable job of trying to portray these people and these fights accurately, but make these very unnecessarily strange choices to try to pump up some sort of fake drama. Mickey Ward made some big money in an epic trilogy of fights against Arturo Gatti. I've never heard of any of this before, but it's all Gatti, I think. And you look up, is it pronounced Gatti? It's spelled yeah. with an A, so okay. And that's where he made, I think, well over a million dollars. Does it even say in the end credits of this? Maybe it does that, too. But I also saw it on Wikipedia. Yeah, for one of those fights, apparently he got his only seven-figure payday. One thing I didn't say earlier about the brothers' relationship that I guess I should bring up. It's a touchy subject, but they talk about how you're supposed to be upfront about depression, addiction, that kind of thing. Not that depression's the issue here. Addiction is. I have sympathy for addicts, for sure, like most people hopefully do. But the Ecklins always turn a blind eye to Dickie's bullshit. That's part of the problem in this movie. Brothers, man, you don't have one. I do, and he's an addict. His addiction's heroin. Probably booze, too, but way more so heroin as far as I understand. So I can relate to Mickey about the addicted ne'er-do-well brother thing. Mickey's more loyal to Dickie than I've been to my brother. My brother's older than me by quite a few years. But you mentioned about the immaturity as well. My brother's in his 50s now. Where you feel like, are you ever going to try to make steps in your life? Because he's not, as I know it, my brother, currently addicted. I think he's maybe gone back and forth since we knew he was, and we absolutely found out he was on heroin at one point, and then he got off of it. I don't know if he's backslid or not. Bab and I talked about this, I think it was on Midsummer. we did a couple of weeks ago. There gets to be a point where enough is he fucking enough. And I think that's where Mickey should have realized that long before with Dickie. So that's what I'm saying, is that you have sympathy for somebody who's got an issue, but you get to be, in his case, around 40, and in my brother's case, around 50, and you're not making changes in your life when you maybe should have learned something by now, that's when I get a little cheesed off. You have a different perspective of it because of your own real-life experiences, so I can appreciate that playing into your view of this movie to a certain extent, or at least those performances and those relationships. I think the performance in the movie of Eklund is interesting from that perspective because it feels like had he not gotten himself arrested it never would have changed. And that was, I thought, what was well done about how they built that real-life HBO documentary that Eklund was actually a part of. He's kind of self-aware while he's still addicted, while he's out in the crack house and all that. And he realizes it's wrong. He's running from his mother as a guy in his late 30s. It's pathetic to watch, and I think that was intentional. And had he not been imprisoned... Would he have had the strength and willpower to break free of the shackles of the addiction and look himself in the mirror and say, I gotta grow up and move forward? I don't think he would have. I don't think so either. And I think that's what gave Mickey, along with the fact he's got Charlene and Mickey O'Keefe in his corner, literally, also gave him the strength to finally say, this can't continue like this. And then he has that fight with Dickie where he knocks him down and has the argument with his mother and all that. His father, actually, Jack McGee, 
one of the better performances he's ever given. He was in, or has been in, 90 movies in 35 years. He's one of the scouts in Moneyball, which we covered a few months ago. That was the year after this. So he was in two really reputable movies in consecutive years. He's great as the father, but he's always looking out for his son. Of course, he's Ward, so Alice remarried whoever Eklund was. We never meet Dickie's father, so Eklund. So George Ward is Mickey's father. That's the thing. And he's looking out for his actual son. He does care about the other kids. I'm sure he's spent many years with them. He's been raising them for however long this has been going on. But that's when things finally get good. And he's got the strength also. So it's almost like everybody was enabled to be better people when Dickie finally got the help he needed by going to jail. Even though in that same scrum, Mickey comes to his brother's aid and gets his hand broken by a cop. You're right about the George Ward character. He's like the one... Charlene's a voice of reason throughout the movie as well, but within Mickey's family circle, the only voice of true reason throughout the movie is George. And this is after Charlene is on the scene and she's come with Mickey to the house to speak to his mother and his sisters are in the background being super rude. You MTV girl. And she's like, what does that even mean? You're wild. But George is the one that's saying, no, Alice, listen to your son. You're not listening. You're telling him what to do while Mickey's saying, I don't know if I want to do this. I kind of want to live my life. It's not going anywhere. I want to move on. And I don't know in that aspect of it what the film is exactly trying to say. Part of it struck me as, for lack of a better term, a condemnation of middle America Catholic guilt. You are responsible for your entire family. It doesn't matter if there's 11 of them around you. You have to drag them all out of poverty. They don't need to act for themselves. So you have to feel that guilt. And I think that's what Mickey effectively struggles with throughout the whole movie is the fact that he's been made to feel like he is the only hope for his entire extended family. It's an interesting moment when he confronts his mother about Eklund. What do you think he's been doing all these years in this crack house? He's been getting high and ruining his life. She kind of mumbles, oh, I thought he was maybe selling drugs to make money or something. She was almost <laughs> more willing to believe that he was a drug dealer rather than a crackhead. But Mark Wahlberg's character absolutely turns an apologetic blind eye for his brother's behavior long past the point when he should have cut ties or get yourself clean. Which is what I've done. I don't have relatives myself with substance abuse problems of that kind. I have relatives that have other issues, certainly, and that I've not seen eye to eye with. And you do come to a point where you just have to say, I can't anymore. When you're ready to re-engage on better terms or make a change in your life, then we can talk. But if it's just going to be the same old repetitive cycle, at a certain point, that's destructive for everybody. One person within this family unit that has this absolutely self-destructive addiction doesn't just affect him it affects everybody around him somehow right it drags them all down it's a weird kind of apologetic view of the prison system almost if i didn't go to jail i wouldn't have had the strength to get free of this drug and i guess that's based in reality maybe Eklund <laughs> did get clean in prison but i feel like there's a whole other host of issues with the american penal system that is unrelated to drug use well but... obviously it can work for some people the system sure. can be good for some people they tend to be white as we know but it isn't always going to destroy somebody. Also, this movie is leaving it open-ended by showing the actors playing the characters one last time talking, and then Dickie gets up, and apparently Bale got legit emotional, and that's why he got up off the couch and walked oh, yeah. off, because he was about to start crying as the character, and I guess he realized, for whatever reason, because actors usually should take advantage of that and cry on camera, but he left the scene. And then you see the real brothers in the bar, and Mickey is reserved, and Dickie is being Dickie. So my point is... I would not be surprised if the real guy, a few months after that big win against Neary, maybe even a few weeks after, got high all over again. That's what addiction is. Addiction isn't fixed once. We talked about that in Coach Carter. Right. That wasn't about addiction, but the Timo Perez character had to learn more than once to actually finally be part of the team. I like that. It was not just, 
I should just play basketball and listen to the coach. <laughs> he screws up repeatedly because he's a kid, too. The problem in this situation is, like with my brother, gets to a point, you're a fucking adult. When are you ever going to be an adult? And it's the same thing with Dickie. It's a lifelong thing. It's never going to be well and truly gone. You're always going to have a struggle with it. One of the interesting takeaways from the end of this movie, the way it's portrayed, that fight against Neri. We've talked about some of these pre-fight promo scenes we talked about with Rocky too, certainly. And you've got Neri saying, well, you know, I don't really think anything of Ward. I'm kind of disappointed I'm not fighting a better competitor. And then they turn to Ward and say, well, what do you think? I'm very grateful for the opportunity. Thank you very much. And that's all he has to say is the blandest, least offensive answer you can possibly give. We haven't really talked about the portrayal of the sport. As far as I can tell, it was pretty good. Oh, I think it's quite solid, yeah. Maybe even excellent. They did a damn good job of trying to replicate some of the big moments of the actual fights. They choreographed it brilliantly. But the one thing that apparently irritated some people that are bigger boxing fans than you and I are the way that they portrayed the end of this movie and his win against Neri. Because that fight was for a belt, the World Boxing, or WBC. But anyway, it was for a belt that the boxing community widely doesn't consider to be the quote-unquote true championship of the world. I don't know what belt that would be. Yeah, I did it. I'm the champion. If you're a real boxing fan, you probably look at it and like, well, no, that's a career achievement. If I was a boxing fan, I might get a little irked about that too. But like we've talked about already, that result of the fight was almost secondary to everything else anyway. I just find it interesting that people would wag their fingers about, oh, that's not really a true championship, guys. Well, three things about that last fight I love. One is that he comes out to one of my favorite songs on Rock Band, Here I Go Again on My Own, which is also thematic, of course, for this film. He's not really on his own anymore, but when you're a boxer, even if you have the best support system in the world, when the bell rings, you're on your own. Those people are not in the ring with you. Although, there's the motivational speech by Dickie Eklund, where he says, It's your time! It reminded me of Mikey and the Goonies. It's our time! It's our time down here! Up there, it's their time! But down here, it's our time! (laughs) I love the Goonies. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I do love it. And also, it's pretty hard to hate the emotional moments after Mickey wins the fight with the family and everything. I really like boxing movies, even though I'm not a fan of the sport itself. Part of the reason why boxing movies can be so satisfying to watch if they're done well, it's for exactly the reason I think that you just cited. Once you're in the ring, you're by yourself. So it really is a mano a mano situation. So you're rooting for an individual to take the physical punishment necessary to win. And keep moving forward. That's That's how we just done. done. Yeah. I think that's part of what plays into it. You can watch a baseball movie, a football movie, a hockey movie, and be emotionally drawn into it, but it's still a team game. You're rooting for a group of people. It can be applicable to wrestling as well. MMA for sure. You're just rooting for a person, understanding that they're going to have to take a beating. They're going to have to suffer. It was a line I forgot before I rewatched Rocky II for our last episode. When somebody asks Rocky, why aren't you fighting anymore? He's like, you ever take 200 punches to the face in one night? It gets tired after a while. (laughs) It doesn't matter how good you are. You're taking hundreds of punches every time you get into the ring. And you just got to keep taking that punishment. There's just no way around it. I kind of thought about Rocky when watching this. Because Ward's whole MO for fighting is to just take more punishment than the other guy. Wait till the other guy gets tired. And then unleash (laughs) the fury. So it's almost like a Rocky-esque. Just take the beating and keep moving forward. (laughs) Not a lot of talent in this guy either, but he does have grim determination. It's true. We didn't even talk about the writers, incidentally. Scott Silver, who was one of the people that wrote Joker last year. Okay. And Paul Tamasey, who was a writer on Airbud, which we covered a few months ago. <laughs> His seminal work to this point, Airbud. And Eric Johnson. 
So those three guys are the writers who all got nominated for their screenplay. We mentioned Aronofsky, that's a producer, and David O. Russell did a solid job of depicting the movie. Like we said, pretty good depiction of the sport. It's not reliant on montages, which is really nice. Also, by the way, we didn't mention this already. We had Mickey two weeks ago as a trainer. Mickey! And now we have Mickey as the main character. Well, not really, but supposed to be the main character as the fighter. Different spelling of his name, though, too. That was a cute moment. At the point that we meet Ward, he was a well-established enough fighter that he wouldn't have been given a robe that misspelled his name. But it was a cute moment in the first fight. Why is there an E in my name? Of course, his name is spelled M-I-C-K-Y. Not M-A-C-K-E-Y. And then later in the fight, when he goes to fight Neri, he's got the fancier robes with the correct spelling of his name. Watch how this guy's life arc and notoriety has progressed. It was almost like a million-dollar baby kind of progression, right? As you see her regalia going into the ring, just gets more and more elaborate as she becomes more successful. Mokushla. Mokushla. (laughs) Mark Wahlberg in this movie is Mokushla. How about the score factor? I would say not really. Adams looks pretty good, and if you dig a shirtless Wahlberg, you're set, but it's not really a movie that inspires that kind of thing. No, there's too much Dick Eklund going on. Although, even for a guy that's meant to be a crack addict, that one scene where you get Christian Bale changing in the locker room, the guy is still ripped. He's wearing hugely oversized shirts to try to accentuate his thinner frame. We're used to seeing Batman or Patrick Bateman, Christian Bale, but dude's still a pretty big, strong guy. He will go down as one of the great actors, I think, really, if you think about it. I may have been a little critical of him in this episode. But he is such a chameleon and such a committed actor. And I don't get that feeling of, well, then again, I guess you hear some stories. I know he was an asshole in the Terminator set. And I know he's been an asshole to his family or something. So I'll look past that because I think he is one of our more committed and talented actors. And it's hard to pin down what his best performance is. Yes, he was Bateman. And yes, he was Batman. But then you look at The Machinist. You look at this performance. You look at Rescue Dawn. Little Women. Bev and I covered that late last year. He has put together one hell of a resume, and this is his movie, so I hope he enjoyed it, even though he won the Best Supporting Actor Oscar. <laughs> but you're right about the size thing, too, because he wasn't that far removed from doing The Dark Knight. Although he's so committed, God knows he probably lost or gained the weight he needed to for his various movies in a matter of weeks or months, because he's nuts that way. He lost 30 pounds for this movie, apparently, but I think when he was playing Batman, he was somewhere between 200 and 220 pounds of a lot of muscle, so even then, he's like a 190-pound, pretty fit guy. You get the impression of him being emaciated in a crack addict. This is not a scorable movie for sure. On the physique front, I don't know if you appreciated this because it's a brief moment, but I certainly did. We see Mark Wahlberg, of course, in the ring shirtless and he's ripped and he's in great fight shape. But there's the one scene of him after he gets the cast off his broken hand. So he's clearly not been able to work out properly for months at that point. He hasn't been training. He's tubby. He's tubby. He looks like me. They probably just gave Mark Wahlberg like six liters of water to drink and said, here, just bloat yourself out for this shot or something. This is what a normal human being would look like if you aren't on a fighter's regimen for the three-month period or something. That's what happens. You're just not always jacked to hell Mark Wahlberg just by default, right? So I kind of like that moment. It's a brief glimpse of maybe reality in there a little bit. Yeah, so not scorable for sure, but I like it a lot. I think I probably, from the sounds of it, like it a little bit more than you do. You did. I'd give it an 8 out of 10. There's aspects of the screenplay that I didn't love, and some of the performances are a little bit too over the top in the ways you described. At times, it can be a bit grating on me as well, even though I'm more apologetic for it. But I thought, all in all, a really enjoyable movie. Yeah, it's enjoyable. I didn't sit there hating it, but I was just frustrated at times, and enough is enough sometimes with some of the performances and the sisters. I guess I got wrapped up in their world where I wanted to be a fly in the wall, maybe one of the family members, and say to the sisters... It's one thing to interfere in his personal life. No, but his business? Shut the fuck up. 
although, as you said earlier, maybe the business does concern them because they are hoping that he's going to take care of them. That's true. That's a wrinkle in this. I do not mean to be criticizing Russell. I think he did a good job of shooting that and putting it on screen, the actors, everything. But anyway, maybe that's the point. I got too wrapped up. And like I said already, I have a personal stake in what Wahlberg is going through with his brother. So my score, I'll give it a seven. I can't give it a fair. less than passing grade because it's a very well-made film. But... It's frustrating. I've never been the biggest fan of this movie. And when it was nominated for Best Picture that year, it wasn't like I was shocked. I heard it was going to be. It was one of those movies you heard months before. Oh, that'll get a nomination. And then it does. It gets some major ones, in fact. And then it wins two acting awards, which is very rare for sports films to even get acting nominations. And this one got three. And Wahlberg yeah. could have been. So a movie that everyone else loves. I respect it. Wasn't a huge fan, necessarily. But it was worthwhile doing. Another boxing film. Two in a row for us. It's a scoring at the movie Fight Month, man. Another brief moment for the movie that really just caught my eye and made me laugh a little bit. When the mother and the sisters go to Charlene's place to confront her for some reason because they haven't seen Mickey for a few weeks and he's at her place getting on with sexy Amy Adams and they're having like the Jerry Springer-esque brawl on the porch of Amy Adams' place and there's the poor woman walking her dog across the street and whoever that little bit player actress is, the look on her face conveying who are these people? What kind of white trash melodrama did I just walk past? It was great. It made that moment. I think that that kind of thing and some of the sisters thing and some of the parents thing and a lot of it felt derivative as well because we've seen this kind of thing done so many times before. It's almost like the fighter made in 1980 or 85 or 92 would have been more effective than 2010 because so many other films of this type had already happened and it's almost like, well, let's get our take on it. But we've seen this kind of thing before. So maybe that's also part of the reason why I didn't love it the way that you and other people have loved it. That's fair. Okay. In two weeks, it will be getting very close to football season. Well, they hope there will be a football season. So let's talk about a vicious action movie that's got plenty of football in it. I've always liked this movie, even though it's pretty coarse and crude. The Last Boy Scout. We're on Twitter. He is at Scoring at Movies. I am at MovieFiend51. I'll say it again. you got to find us on scoringatthemovies.podbean.com. That's our quote-unquote website, which just basically just has all the episodes. Yeah. We're on Stitcher, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts under the Top 100 Project banner until sometime in October. And also tune in for the Scoring at the Movies feed. As we record this, we are on Spotify currently. We should be on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and tune in with all of our episodes, all 58 of them, by the time this goes up. So subscribe to the new Scoring at the Movies channel soon, but you've got a few months to do that. Take her easy, dudes. I know that you'll be wicked awesome. Nice. A teamwork effort there. High five. (sighs) Virtual high five.